Hello, this is Charles Hayne for the No Film School podcast for the very spoopy week of October 29th, 2020. I am writer Charles Hayne, and I am here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And we are here talking about the death of Quibi, which is not frightening at all and was very predictable. Uh, we are talking about Borat 2. I'm not going to do a Borat 2 voice because... I'm embarrassed still from the one time I did a Borat voice in 2005. I still cringe that I once, <laughs> one time did it. So that might have saved us all today. We're going to be talking about Netflix actually finally dropping a ton of numbers, which is su- super exciting. We've got all that. We've got some tech news from Hollyland with their Mars line of remote recorders. And we've got a really great question from uh, someone who's light shopping. It's like the perfect question to take to the no film school boards and we're going to answer it are these lights bright enough question mark all that this week on the no film school podcast our first story this week the most predictable you ever watch a horror movie and you know from the beginning who's going to die I feel like in January of this year everybody in America was like yeah Quibi's not going to make a Halloween and turns out, Quibi didn't make it to Halloween. Um, so I'm, look, I have so much shade to throw at Quibi, and I'm more than happy to continue <laughs> to trash Quibi. There's, but there's a couple things, like, I want to, uh, it's so complicated. We've been writing were, on this podcast, if you haven't been listening, we've been wondering about how Quibi would work, predicting how long Quibi would last. Like, we've sort of been talking about this inevitability for a while we've been fascinated by it um perhaps more so than than others but but also you were at a sundance quibi event that we so there was david geffen shushed emily and emily was talking about a normal (laughs) longtime writer for the for no film school emily booter amazing writer wonderful human being lover of dogs she's one of those people you're walking around with who will stop at every dog She's a, she's just got, she's a good human being. And we were having a normal volume conversation, normal volume. Not if you, you can go back and listen to our Sundance podcasts. We did a real in-depth coverage of the shushening as we call it. And Geffen just walked up and looked at her and went, shh, as if a big announcement was going to come. So for no one responded because we were like, oh, maybe they're about to make some big announcement. Maybe they're shushing everyone. And then he just wandered away and there was no big announcement. He just wanted Emily to stop talking. Which is like, it was rude in the context. I think the full context, even more so. Well, there was also some gender things. I mean, I'm very loud. I know I'm very loud. My nickname in college was the Shouter, and I've accepted that. I have a a, a loud voice. Shush me. If if you're annoyed that our party is being too loud, it is definitely my fault. Shush me. But like, shushing Emily, like it was, it was just such a strange, strange moment. So we might have some bias, you know, we might have had some bias against Quibi. There's, there's, that's there, but you know what I think is interesting before there's some other things I know you're going to touch on, but I wanted to add is that, uh, there is, there's a weird kind of Quibi defense that I've seen floating around the internet. Sometimes it's like, Hey, they tried something. Why were people rooting for them to fail? And I felt that that was like kind of targeted at, at us in a way. And or at least those who are just kind of like, but it's like for me, it's like, look, 
did Meg Whitman and and David Geffen need Quibi to succeed? No. It wasn't like this big gamble, you know, that like it was more like they were trying to dictate to the market what was going to work and be cool. And that was like immediately annoying to me personally. It was it was like, wait, that's not what people want. That's not how it's going to work. Like, what are you creating anyway? Um, Now, as for those who had content on Quibi or for the many people who lost jobs or whatever, that's a whole other story. And I do not enjoy that part of this. And I don't want it to seem like I, we or anybody I know certainly takes any pleasure in knowing that people had shows they were working on, people had a platform they were excited about getting their stuff on, or people working there are now looking for other jobs. That's all sucky. I'm just talking about the people who said, this is a good idea. Take, give me your money to invest in this idea. I mean, it's not hard for me to be rooting against them. The reason why I was a little bit rooting against them is because it did not feel like there was any open path at Quibi for new voices. Every t- every person I talked to at Quib- at, who had like some connection to Quibi or they were pitching a Quibi show or whatever, everybody came away from the experience saying, oh, they only want a list at Quibi. And I understand that from a like marketing perspective where you're Jeffrey Katzberg and Meg Whitman and you've gone to your investors and you said, we're only going to have A-listers and so you're going to get Steven Spielberg and um, – and Guillermo del Toro to do shows, and that's going to be great. But, like, honestly, I mean, I know that Steven Spielberg did take 10 years to finance Lincoln, and, and everyone has problems financing their movies. But, like, when people defend Quibi with, the, like, at least they were trying something new, they were trying something new, giving primarily opportunities to the same, like, pool of people who are already established and have another pool of opportunities. I know very few people. I can't think of any of the Quibi shows that I heard about where I was like, oh, wow. They legitimately threw some avenue through pitching, through meeting with agents, through like scouting young talent, going to festivals. They found someone, you know, because HBO will do that. HBO will give shows to people. There's two or three shows on HBO right now where the people were not particularly famous, but they had like a small breakout hit at a festival. And HBO was like, yeah, you can have a show. I mean, hell, Girls, Tiny Furniture was not a big hit, but it was enough that HBO was interested. Like, you know, um, Random Acts of Flyance, Terrence Nance is obviously great, but like not a huge you know, A-lister by any means, not a like, you know, I'm getting $100 million movies made and we get these great, interesting shows. I just read about a new show. HBO is doing that thing where I'm like, oh, good for you. You're like legitimately taking these little interesting people you find through the festival space and giving them a platform. If Quibi was doing that, if there were like 10 people who had Quibi shows where I was like, oh, I've never heard of you, but I Google you and you had a thing at South by last year. I'll look at the trail. Oh, you seem interesting. That would be one thing, but literally Quibi was like, we would just like people who are already famous to do things on our platform only. And like that came up over and over when I talked to people who are close to Quibi. Yeah, it's a really good point. And you don't even need to talk, like even out people who aren't close to it, you could tell by what was the roster and what was the content they were rolling out. And you could also tell, by the way, that that wasn't a particularly good strategy, given that if you're targeting, you know, maybe a generation under me and you who are watching content on their phones and probably don't really care who directed it that much. It seems weird to spend all the money or all the whatever, the capital in any sense, to have it be directed by Steven Spielberg because obviously he's an amazing draw. He's a unique, amazing talent. But do you need him to make that work? Do you need to make that spend? And I think 
look, I'm not Jeffrey Katzenberg, but I think the answer is probably no. And the reason I feel comfortable criticizing the the business plan, besides for just like anyone should be able to criticize it, but let's just talk about who Jeffrey Katzenberg is. He's an amazing producer who remade Disney's animation division and television division in the late 80s, early 90s, just for context. He's the guy who put Disney was in such a lull in the mid early, actually really late 70s through the mid 80s. He was a big part of the turnaround to becoming what it would eventually be today. So all those animated classics, the second golden age, he was a huge part of that. But he left He part, part of DreamWorks uh, with Spielberg and Geffen. And one of the things that I think is interesting in the context you just mentioned about Jeffrey Katzenberg is that the model at DreamWorks Animation was to cast very big names as the stars in animated movies, which seems kind of like a, a page out of an older playbook. And I think it works, you know, Kung Fu Panda and maybe in a couple of the other instances, but the idea of chasing the big names doesn't always make sense. And I think that we're getting more and more into an era where you have to be aware of what, um, I really don't want to make it sound like I'm trying to give Jeffrey Katzenberg producing advice, but that's what this is coming off as. But I just think that for something, for a platform like Quibi, just like for maybe an animated feature, I mean, his own early successes, like The Little Mermaid, they didn't have Julia Roberts voice The Little Mermaid, right? So I wonder at what point the idea was like, we have to pack this cast with stars. And similarly with Quibi, why did every Quibi show need A-listers in it? That's not the model. Like it just, it, it doesn't make sense. That's my, and I, I think there's a consistent thing of like, my point, if I can distill it, is like at a certain point, you may be out of touch a little bit after decades of success and and money, frankly, with what a rising generation is interested in and how they're enjoying the, the shows they're enjoying because who stars in it may be less important to them, certainly than well, it is to you. Or and who those was. stars are. I mean, I remember like 10 years ago when YouTube was first exploding, I was at, at some like young Hollywood networky mixery thing because I used to go to a lot of those. I remember this one guy being like, oh, I got the 10 biggest YouTubers on YouTube and I got them all together and they're all signed up to do this indie feature. I don't remember if the indie feature came out. Clearly, I never heard of it. And I know a lot of people tried to do that. Like, oh, you're a big YouTube star. We're going to do a feature around you. And it turns out like YouTube stars are YouTube stars and they have millions of people who want to watch them there, but they don't necessarily want to watch those same people in a 90 minute movie. You know, there's lots of people who are great to watch in a 90 minute movie that have tried to do YouTube channels and that hasn't been that interesting. So like, yes, yeah, exactly. So, so there should have been some consideration of like, Hey, Quibi is a little bit closer to what, what like YouTube is. And maybe instead of, you know, the star from X biggest recent movie or show, we should think about if we're trying to get the people who watch stuff on YouTube, what the talent pool they watch there is instead of like, I know what we'll do. We'll do YouTube, but like with a big budget like yeah. talent list. Like it just doesn't make sense. Damn it. <laughs> but well, the, I, but, and the only yeah. show I ended up really enjoying was an Instagram star, that guy who makes really elaborate marijuana cigarette joint things. Yes. Like, yes. You're yeah. You like, mentioned I don't that, even smoke yeah. marijuana, but that show was thoroughly enjoyable because he had like 
the right personality for spending a little time with him on my phone. And it was like the right scale. Now, so now's the time to talk about a little movie called 24 Hour Party People. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. I'm strangely obsessed with it. I saw it like seven times in the movie theater. I watch it every four or five years. I love it. It's Michael Winterbottom. And it's a great movie about like the Manchester party scene in the 70s and 80s. And there's this amazing scene where a big London Records is coming in to buy Factory Records. And they're going to buy Factory Records. And they're like, okay, great. And then where are all the artist contracts? And Factory Records is like, oh, we, we don't actually own any of the artist contracts. Like they release albums with us, but we don't, we don't have like exclusives with them. And so London Records is like, then what are we doing here? And they leave. And uh, that is what happened with Quibi. So Quibi, as part of their attracting aliens to talent, Geffen made what may or what ended up being a strategic error in the end. Um, his deal was, I believe they had two years, correct me if I'm wrong here, they had two years of exclusive on the material, meaning you can do your show for us. And it might have been regional or it might have been international, I'm not sure, but like at least North America exclusive, and I believe it was two years. And then you want to recut it, sell it as a movie in a foreign market. And remember, this was all before the pandemic when like theatrical releases were a thing. You want to take it, try and do a theatrical in China, try and do a theatrical in India, or just do a cable release in Europe, something like that, monetize it other ways. You can do that. Now, this is amazing um, because it's so artist generous. You know what I mean? And clearly it's something he only had to do to get the A-listers. Because, you know, they raised $1.75 billion. They have $350 million they're returning to investors, which means they spent $1.4 billion <laughs> so far on marketing and creating the content. So let's say, let's just say $600 million on content, $800 million on marketing. Back of the envelope. They had $600 million they spent on content, which means if you're used to, you know, you, if you, let's say you're like making the best web series. What's the one that won all the awards? Um F to seventh. It's a uh, um, about uh, it's a lesbian community in Park Slope. That's like the one that wins all the awards in the in the webcast space. Great little web series. If they'd gone to them, which I'm sure those episodes cost ten grand a piece. If if they'd gone to them and said, "Hey, here's ten million dollars," the, the creators probably would have been so excited that they wouldn't have needed to keep international distribution. Or if they'd gone to high maintenance before HBO got to them, HBO again, another example, finding a great web series and giving it another platform. If, if they'd gotten to high maintenance four or five years ago or whatever, the money would have been enough to keep exclusivity. But by deciding to go for A-listers, he had to give away that exclusivity. So when he went shopping, because over about the last two or three months, he's been shopping, trying to get anybody to buy it. But like, what's left to buy? The app? Well, Ficto also has a beautiful app. Uh, my show is on Ficto. And He's in a lawsuit with the app over another developer, and and the app itself isn't that interesting. The content is what's really interesting, and Quibi doesn't own that much of it. I mean, I'm assuming a lot of the small shows are exclusive. I'm assuming my favorite show, that show about the guy makes the elaborate marijuana cigarettes, is probably an exclusive that can't go anywhere else. I bet the Ron Funches show and the Titus Press show are probably um, exclusive. But all of the A-list stuff, all of the stuff that's monetizable – they don't have exclusive content for, it. and could be launched in April, which means they only have eighteen months left on that stuff. To my so, to to our to our community, you're you're raising such a good point about the math. To our community, if it if it didn't bother you already, I feel like it should bother all of you guys and girls and folks now, because I know that a lot of you 
are very capable of making really good stuff that would look fine on a phone for a lot less. <laughs> and I just think the idea is almost a little insulting that you would have to spend that much to fill out the platform's content when there are so many capable creators and with the ability, not just the ability, but the native sensibility that goes with that sort of platform. Like it's insulting a little bit, but I want to say also about like spending money. Another thing like just Jeffrey Katzenberg has been a very good, uh, he's, his humanitarian efforts and his donations in the past, like he's, he's, he does good things with his money. So the wastefulness perhaps in this instance, I mean, I know he's not the only force behind Quibi, but I just want to temper the criticism by saying, I know he's done a lot of good in the world with his money as well. So. Yeah. And then my last bit of Quibi conversation before we move on to Borat is this week, I was surprised to, I've had this happen to me a couple of times in my life where I open up some sort of media and I'm briefly completely disoriented by what I see on the screen. Uh, it happened to me in high school. Uh, I was dating a girl who now lives across the street from me. Life is weird. Uh, 20 years later and four states away. Um, yeah, but, that is um, yeah, she's really nice. Um, and, uh, but we were dating in high school and I turned on the television and her ex-boyfriend's face filled the screen completely full frame for 30 seconds. And then it cut to a wide shot and he was on a game show and they'd asked him a question and he buzzed and they were waiting 30 seconds for him to answer. But literally I just turned on the TV and for 30 seconds, it was my girlfriend's ex-boyfriend's face, which was disorienting. Like, you're just like, what's going on? What has happened in the world? It's a very bizarre <laughs> feeling. Um, that happens a lot when you're in Los Angeles, I would imagine, because you know people who end up on game shows. So I had a similar feeling where I went to the New York Times recently and playing in a full screen ad on the New York Times, it started playing with a spec commercial I directed 15 years ago when I was still in film school try thinking about getting into commercial directing. And like 10 seconds of the spec commercial I directed played. And then it cut out of it and into the rest of the thing. And it's a trailer for, it was an American Apparel spec commercial. You got to forgive me. It was 2005. I'm embarrassed <laughs> by doing American Apparel specs equally to doing a Borat voice. Um, you know, it's a rough time we were, for you. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to own that. Not, not, not my peak <laughs> years. You should see some of my fashion choices, bootcut jeans, faux hawk. Um, you know, we're not proud. And, um, but so Quibi, has a um, documentary on Dove Charney and American Apparel, um, the rad boy, rad behavior for the love of rad. There's a rad pun in the title about American Apparel. And they used footage from my spec commercial without permission in the promotional trailers and the show. Wow. Come on. It's a Quibi Vice co-production. And I'm like, come on, guys. Get your act together. Like, Footage licensing is 101 for a documentary. Every documentary has someone that is like doing a spreadsheet, making sure footage is getting licensed. And the fact that they were sloppy enough to just like troll YouTube and download something because they thought it looked cool and use it as the opening 10 seconds of the trailer is without licensing it is sloppy. Yeah, that's unacceptable. Yeah. And now because that, like uh, copyright is sort of annoying if you don't enforce it. Like I, I want money. I would, they should pay me for the use of that footage, but now I have to go pursue money from them for licensing that footage. Because if I don't, it's considered not enforcing it. You have to enforce it, but I also want to enforce it. Cause I'm like, come on guys, 
You literally opened your trailer with footage you stole. Yeah. That's crazy. That must have well, yeah, been very surreal, the moment of discovery. I, I literally did not know what was happening. For a minute, I thought it was some weird corrupt like GPU thing where I had Vimeo up in another tab. And, you know, I thought like my computer was dying. <laughs> and I was like, is it showing me work? And then I was like, no, this is the New York Times. And it was just very, very, very strange and disorienting. And it's also like when you work on a documentary, you have an archival producer who is constantly checking permissions and you have to turn all those over to the network. So this tells us not only is vice sloppy, which like I actually have friends at vice and I like vice and I'm not going to make that much fun of vice, but like vice is also notoriously sloppy, but also Quibi is sloppy in that either someone lied at vice and listed this footage as being cleared or they didn't even list the footage at all. And it made it through both vice's checks and Quibi's checks. Cause like, if you work on a show for PBS, you have to turn a big FileMaker document over to them, documenting every shot in the thing and how you cleared it, where you paid for it, what the fee was, and what the rights are. And like, clearly, Quibi, either Quibi or Vice, was just like, eh, I just found this thing on YouTube. It's, un- it's bizarre. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's also my YouTube account is my name. I'm really easy to Google. <laughs> Well, you should keep us abreast of how it goes with this. Like like yeah. just for our community to understand like what happens when you start pursuing something like this and what what are the roadblocks and how annoying is it and cuz this thing is going to happen to people if uh, all the time, I would imagine. Yes. This is Yeah, actually I've had students ask me about this before because I've had I mean this happens a lot with documentary footage. This is the first time I've heard of it happening with a spec commercial because it's rare that you make a spec commercial like most people do spec commercials for BMW and BMW is together enough that if there's ever a documentary about BMW, they're not going to be this sloppy. It's just because I happened to do a spec commercial for a company that was sloppy run right. by a founder that was sloppy that ended up with a documentary being made by a company that's a little sloppy for a platform. That's a little sloppy that let this happen. I think it's rare for <laughs> spec commercials. Uh, it happens yeah. a lot more with um, most of my students who've run into this or friends who've run into this. It's documentary footage. They're at a protest. They're at an event. They see something sure. happen. They shoot it. It goes up on Twitter. And even those posts on Twitter doesn't mean the news can use it without your permission. And you'll see that on public Twitter threads all the time where you'll see some amazing news footage. And then you'll see all these news stations below replying to the tweet with like, hey, I'm from this channel. Can I use it with attribution? Yada, yada, yada. They're just trying to like get permission as quickly as they can. Um, so, yeah, it's it, like – this is a one-off. I, I will continue to tell the story if there are updates, but I think it's a one-off of having my spec commercial poached. Like spec commercials are usually, they disappear into the ether of that yeah. was the thing we did. So it's having just so of all things to have someone rip, that's a weird one. It is a very strange one. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, moving on to another strange one. Um, <laughs> filmmaker, actor, in multiple things this week, also in the new Netflix Aaron Sorkin joint, um, Chicago 7. 
Um, Sasha Baron Cohen has another film out. And what's interesting to me, about there's so many things that are interesting about Borat's subsequent movie film. I actually think Sasha Baron Cohen is brilliant. I think he is yes. very funny. I think he is an interesting filmmaker who has a very insightful, talented view on um, cinema and comedy and politics. And I think he's a fascinating um, person. But I haven't read as many stories as I would have wanted. I mean, this movie was at least partially shot after COVID. Like the scene yes. that everyone knows about, the Rudy Giuliani scene, was in July. And, you know, is this the first production shot during COVID that's released? Like that seems like a story angle that I haven't seen them hitting in the press at all. I mean, frankly, you don't need to do any other press than Rudy Giuliani tries to sleep with an underage reporter. Like that's enough press. You don't also need the New York times to do a like anatomy of a scene. And here's yeah, where Rudy right. Giuliani tucks in his shirt. Anatomy right. of a, like, um, you know, there's, this movie is, there's a lot going on. Um, editorial wise on no film school on the site, we discussed how to cover because people were talking so much about just the scene, right? And one of the things that struck me initially was that from the from the perspective of what filmmakers can take away, this was a, a intentional or not a stroke of genius in terms of of marketing because this is an election cycle, but it's also like a really heating up hot one where most of the drive most of the things driving clicks and views right now are related to the figures in this election cycle and to have released a movie where there's a compromising scene controversial compromising scene featuring somebody close to one of these candidates is just crazy in terms of cutting through the noise because so many things, like you mentioned, Trial of the Chicago 7 is a big movie, an Aaron Sorkin movie. And, and I actually interviewed Faden Michael, the uh, DP, the other day. That'll be on our podcast soon. But um, this is a big movie that's being that's released and out. But cutting through the noise is so hard, especially because there's so many things on streaming. But Borat's subsequent movie film, because of this situation, managed to like shoot right to the top of everybody's attention. And I think that's fascinating. Now, there won't always be these perfect storms of things and not, not everyone's going to. But I just think it's an interesting model to keep in your head that connecting the dots to you can't do it. It's not necessarily something you can engineer, but it's fascinating. Like it was the best free press you could get. Right. Um, to say nothing of the fact that the movie itself is a fascinating. I'm going to have to use that word a few times. Uh, bookend to the original for the original came out 14 years ago and was like side splittingly hilarious, uh, groundbreaking, crazy. If you haven't read all the stories or check out uh, Cohen's interview with Mark Marin on the WTF podcast, if you're interested in like going into like just how dangerous it was and how crazy he was like risking life and limb and running like he was he was he's not allowed to be in certain states or something i think now but the movie's hilarious like it, i mean i certainly what do you remember seeing it when it came out charles i absolutely remember seeing bora in the movie theater when it came out and i remember seeing there is a uh he he naked wrestles a large gentleman 
Yes. <laughs> and I remember seeing that large gentleman, like within a week or two of Borat opening, having brunch at uh, the 101, uh, which I, I hear the 101 might be closing, separate LA thing, but it's a great, yeah. the 101 was a great diner that I used to go to like twice a week back when I lived in LA up on Franklin. And I remember seeing him and he was just a glow like a movie star because he was in a, you know, I mean, the I've never been in a hit movie, but like he was in the hit movie. And like the diner was buzzing with the fact that this like, you know, older portly character actor who was very nice and who's very funny in the movie was just soaking up his being in a hit. I hope he's in the subsequent movie film if he's still around. He he seemed very nice in the diner. He was being very polite to his um to being aware that everyone was looking at him. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's it's a movie, very funny movie. Yeah, and I remember so I remember obviously there's like the first thing right off the bat it was a big theatrical experience movie because you were like experiencing that movie with a group of people and the insanity of it was amazing. And one of the reasons theaters are so important. So it's already an, a hard for subsequent movie film. <laughs> I love that subtitle for it, that it didn't do, it didn't have that because of right now, but the other interesting thing, having seen it and I, I got a post that I'm putting up on no film school about this and I don't usually write, but, but this was one that I wanted to put out there is that it's a very, the contrast to where we were in 2006 and where we are in 2020 and how Borat attempting to capture the magic or further that narrative, like even forgetting what you think of sequels, the world has changed a lot. And one of the ways it's changed is in 2006 and even prior to that, when Sasha Baron Cohen started doing this style comedy, where he would essentially lead his subject or the mark into a compromising quote or agreement or just uncomfortable situation. And we watched them wrestle with it, uh, be it anti-Semitism, racism, whatever kind of intolerance. It's become the quiet part now gets said out loud so much that there's nothing shocking in Borat's subsequent movie film about the way people behave. There's no way Borat can coax somebody into saying something that is not, that doesn't feel kind of normal these days, which is crazy. Because in 2006, which honestly wasn't that long ago, really, the things that he would get people to be comfortable with were appalling. It's just not appalling anymore. Like it, it's so normal. It's sadly normalized for these rallies and these like sing-alongs he does like it's just I laugh because it's insane to me but that to me is one of the things that uh, is so mind-blowing about this it, it it's that we've come so far from there um and he another thing about Cohen that's that's amazing is he uses these comedic characters to kind of take down some of the attack and take down some of the dominant culture and beliefs and reveal what's really going on behind them. But right now it's all out in the open. You know, there isn't much that's, that's not being said. Well, that is heavy to think about that. Like in a way, Borat was about exposing something that many people already knew. Like when he yes. exposed racism or anti-Semitism, most people who are oppressed by the racism or the anti-Semitism was like, oh, we know people are that anti-Semitic. And it was showing it to a wider, broader audience who might not 
have understood or experienced that that was still the reality in the world. And we have in the last four years, and especially in the last year, had a lot of it just like been like, no, guys, the world is this racist. The world is this anti-Semitic. This world is this sexist. Like, I can't believe we're in a world where like the former mayor of 9-11 can reach into his pants. Like, <laughs> he keeps defending that he was just tucking in his shirt, but like, it is inappropriate when you are interviewed by someone to go to another hotel room with them and de-mic together and give them your number. Like, we know what you're like. That and drink, alone, drinking yeah, it, and like hands in the pants. Like, there's just too much about it. Like, it. I think the headlines. In, in ninety nine, that yeah. would have destroyed anyone. Yeah, that's another thing that's just like it's crazy to remember that he was America's mayor and that he was that that part of his backstory is so back right now to what is going on with him in the last but either way i i just it none of it like i i i maybe it's me um maybe other people find some of it appalling and shocking still um i know that sasha baron cohen's politics and insight were part of what drove the attempt to kind of like hey you know bring it back and target some of these ideas and some of these movements happening like but you can't out crazy some of the climate in this country right now like you can't you can't do it it's too already too heated and crazy and i found that haunting as i was watching the movie so i'm curious if our community uh feels that way totally disagrees uh i know there's laughs in there there's way more scripted content than there was the first time it's way more it's way closer to being a regular comic but this is a this is you know a very unique interesting situation this movie the release timing the attention it's getting and just uh yeah comedy is becoming harder to do not just by that old like oh it's like everything's pc etc it's harder to do just because what shocks people anymore what's absurd anymore you know what's what's going to be a surprise I, having had a background in comedy myself, I just think that the needle is harder to thread. And again, it's not about the what's appropriate even. It's just about what can you do that's going to upend expectations. Yeah. I mean, also, I think our taste in comedy has probably changed through meme culture. Like if you, totally. you know, like we are, we're definitely in a, uh, yeah, our expectations for what are going to make us laugh are a different thing than they used to be. Yeah. Speaking of things that make us laugh, things that make us cry, Netflix has actually released a lot of screening and viewership data, which is news because this is not something Netflix does a lot of. In fact, this is something Netflix does very little of. In fact, this is something Top that filmmakers, <laughs> filmmakers with movies on Netflix are frequently frustrated about the lack of data they get on Netflix. If you're used to being a filmmaker, you know, I did a trailer once that like uh, blew up uh, for Pride and Prejudice of Zombies, Dawn of the Dreadfuls. And we were checking like every 20 minutes on its YouTube count. And we learned all, of, you know, uh, apparently there's like a delay. We didn't know about that time. The big YouTubers all know about like the delays and how long you should wait and stuff. But like we were checking every couple hours to see where the hits were. And it was like blowing up to half a million and a million. And it was just like, so exciting to see how many people were viewing it. And you can look at a little graph of when people drop off and all that stuff. Netflix doesn't give their filmmakers. I mean, I'm sure house of cards gets that data. A lot of Netflix filmmakers don't get that data. They're very locked down about data, but instead, and you know, we got some numbers on bird box a year ago. And then this week 
We have a big article breaking it all down on the Was website. Was that only a year ago? Holy crap. I know. Bird Box feels like 10 years ago. Um, and they gave us some data on Bird Box, which was interesting. And now they've finally given us a whole data dump of their biggest things. Now, the most interesting thing for me is not any of the individual stats about like Spencer Confidential or Six Underground. It's that they have sort of two categories. Uh, you know, the more important, interesting category is movies where 70% of the film is completed, right? Which is still not 100% like you get with theatrical. Theatrical, you're assuming most people stayed the whole time. Your 70% is a certain figure, but then there are other ones. So it's 70%, but the other figure they release is watched at least two minutes, which is like heartbreaking. If you put your heart and soul <laughs> into a 90 minute, you know, beautiful movie, and then like really watched at least two minutes isn't actually about the quality of your film. It's about the quality of the marketing. The marketing did a good job at convincing people to watch two minutes of the movie so if you're high in the watch two minutes of the movie list, but you're low on the 70% completed list, I would actually feel really gutted by that. Bird Box is still the highest 70% of film completed. Um, part of that is also because Bird Box has been out a little longer than some of the others. It's, 20, uh, it's de- December of 2018, so it's about a year and a half ago. A lot of the rest of these films are 18, 19. And, you know, a lot of people do go back over time to watch the films. I've definitely watched... 20 minutes of something and then gone back a couple months later and finished it like that does happen. So I think it's had more time to get over it. 70% hurdle. Um, and you know, the Irishman was, uh, is in the list, which is particularly exciting because 70% of the Irishman is still longer than an average movie. So like most uh, of my lifetime. Oh yeah. 70% <laughs> of the Irishman is yeah. A, a significant chunk of time. Um, and then I, what was also, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, um, it's funny because we're on a podcast and, I, you know, I look at podcast metrics and analytics sometimes. And I think it's a little inside baseball, but, you know, it's interesting to consider the two minutes at least success. Because like you said, there's, you know, a big drop off after the very early part of any of a podcast, for example. Some people come for whatever reason, they download, they listen for a couple minutes. Maybe they hear our intro and they're like, ah, I'm out. But that's true with YouTube. That's true with everything. The real interesting part is how long until you get the really big drop off. You know, there's like things go off a cliff towards the end when people are just like, okay, it's over. I'm out. Um, And how many people can you sustain? Like what's that mid-level of of sustaining an audience and like what people are listening to or interested in and, and engagement? And I think that you're right. Like that at least two minutes thing doesn't really tell us much at all. Um, but the 70% thing is fascinating to me just because how do you go in 70% and just leave then? Do you know what I mean? Like, like I keep thinking like, what's the difference between the 70% completion and a hundred percent completion? Do people like, have, do you ever watch a movie at 70% and then you're like, meh at this point, I'm out. I'm done. That's never happened to me. I feel like 70% is, the, is just them being safe, and they are reasonably assuming most people are making it to the end. But considering okay. the fact that sometimes that titles sense. are different links, like, for instance, I watched Chicago 7, um, and I, you know, you uh, when you're watching in the theater, you're not really thinking about how long is this movie, but when you're watching at home, you're conscious. There's 11 minutes of credits at the end. So I'm, like, watching the little scroll guy go by uh, I see. in... Yeah. Yes. In Netflix. And I'm like, 
And I literally thought there must be a couple more scenes coming because I thought there was no way that that percentage of the scroll bar was going to be credits. And then the movie ended and I was like 11, 20 something. It was just like, oh, okay, you guys have a long credit sequence. So I think 70 is just to be safe. Also, I love the resolution, the resolution for you guys who aren't narrative structure obsessed. You know, after the climax of a film, there's traditionally a resolution where sort of the return to normal, the classic resolution, you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the climax of the film, uh, the top of the arc is up in the sky. The film climaxes when the arc hits the top and then it falls and the arc closes. Everything after that is a resolution. The final scene back in Washington, um, you know, Marion sees him on the stairs. That's all resolution. So I bet with action films, there's a bunch of people who are, who don't need the resolution who are like, okay, hmm. that guy's neck is broken out. I don't need to see him <laughs> back in, you know, Danville, Illinois, having dinner with his family, smiling. I don't need to see the shot. Like, what is it in Pearl Harbor where Ben Affleck is like standing in his field in Tennessee looking at the sky? Hmm, um, never saw it, I, but yeah, I can. Yeah, I, I bet a lot of people skip the resolution. Like, you know, uh, not to go all political, everybody vote. I don't care what country you're in, vote. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump famously would uh, watch Jean Claude Van Damme kid, Van Damme films with his kids but he would make them fast forward through all the boring parts. So it was literally just like watching 40 minutes of fight scenes. Um, <laughs> just like, I have just a rule. I have a rule with my kids. I didn't know that story. I have a rule that, that they try to do because they live in this era where it's easy to skip around. And my wife sometimes even encourages it. But if you're watching a movie, you have to watch the movie. You're not allowed to skip. It's not, it's not part of the deal. My only exception to that is my, my daughter is still young enough that when we do let her watch things, like if we let her watch Moana, Moana is an amazing film and she loves singing along with Maui, but we always skip The Lava Monster because The Lava Monster is kind of scary. Um, yeah, so, no, you know, that's a whole, yes, that's, it's you the can skip or close from, your eyes. Yes. Moana yeah. is a good movie, by the way. Moana is amazing. Moana is phenomenal. Um, and I will, I will stand by that. It is so, so good. Oh, yeah. So moving on to tech news. Tech news a lot. So, if you would ask me in April, what are a lot of your tech news stories going to be about this year? I wouldn't have guessed what has turned out to be the case, which is remote onset viewing tools. And honestly, if I'd really sat down and thought about it, I might have figured that out. But it's not the first thing that came to me. I knew we'd have a lot of frame I know news this year, and we've talked about a bunch of frame I own tools. And I, I knew remote workflows were going to be a really big deal, but I, it didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't see onset viewing. Like that wasn't an initial thing, but there's been a whole lot of progress in onset viewing this year. And one of the real benefits of that is if you're out on shoots and shoots are happening. I mean, the film school where I teach, you're divided up in pods and you can only work with your pods, but people are shooting five person crews and, and social distanced. And, uh, you know, the crews have to be far apart from each other. And, you know, at Steiner Studios where I work, the parking lot is packed. It is full. Uh, you know, shows are back in production. I can't say which because I'm not supposed to, but like stuff you will see. I think has been posted on Instagram. People are busy. But one of the things is we no longer want people crowding around the monitor. So earlier in the summer, I did a tech news on the Hollyland Mars 400, which is a really interesting device because it lets you monitor in two ways. So a normal onset wireless video system, uh, you have a transmitter and a receiver. You put the transmitter on the camera and the receiver on the monitor, and you can wander around set willy-nilly, and it's all good. The Mars added this cool feature, the Mars 400 that I reviewed back in May, where you could have a receiver on a monitor and you could also have two people open an app on their phone and watch video on the phone, That's which is super cool. cool. What's how, what's the quality like? 
And is it's it any acceptable. Phone? Well, uh, the, yeah. their app is only iPhone for now, but I guarantee you it yeah. will be Android soon. Um, I, I got my hands on most it. Sets, iPhone will be enough. <laughs> iPhone, I, iPhone will be fine. And actually, what it'll end up being, because um, Teradek had a similar product that I, where you had to have separate units, like you had to have a serve and a bolt. Um, the cool thing about the Hololens is combining it. So I've been using the serve for like four years. And what it really becomes is iPad more than iPhone. Because what happens then is Glam Squad gets an iPad so they can see what the shot is while staying in Glam Squad. And they can see if they need to run in. Production design will have an iPad or something that they're using for their other work. And then they can switch over to see how the monitor is to, to check what the framing is like. So it just becomes this really handy tool where you can get people further away from the monitor. Instead of having... because. Really, if there's a vector on set, people talk about in front of camera all the time, but it's relatively easy to keep people apart in front of camera and mask up whenever you're not shooting. The monitor is the the crowd point on a lot of sets where people are crowd around that monitor like a campfire. If you're on a night exterior, often it has a little heater. It is a literal campfire to keep you warm as you gather around the monitor. So the ability to distribute it out is really cool. So Mars is just, Hollyland has just come out with the Mars 400 Pro. And that's our tech news this week, because in addition to the two features we talked about, you can have a transmitter for a full SDI signal, though, like a nice monitor, and you can add a couple phones. It also has a USB port, and all you have to do is plug it into a computer, and it's a webcam. So you can stream over Zoom. You can stream over anything that you stream with. It just comes up as a web camera with a USB port. Now, you could have done this before. You could buy a $200 Blackmagic mini recorder and and get a video signal in, but with this is all just built into one unit now. Instead of having to have an extra unit, an extra cable, and another point of failure, there's now three ways to stream out of this one single unit. So as clients are increasingly not coming to set, as clients are going to stay in Detroit, but they're going to want to watch what's being shot real time, this is a way to simplify your ability to just plug it into your laptop, and it and it comes up as a camera and zoom. You know, if you're doing a zoom meeting, there's always your little video settings at the bottom, it'll be in the list of cameras that you can switch to for your Zoom. So I thought that was really cool. Like they yeah, did a whole bunch is. of other things where they, you know, now it's got a little hot shoe, makes it easier to mount and stuff like that. But putting all three of those different distribution techniques into one little unit, I think it's going to be really appealing to people as they start to get out on their upcoming shoots. Nice. Yeah. And then last this week, we have, a can- we have a question for Ask No Film School from Tom Atkinson. And Tom is asking, are these lights bright enough? I'm looking to buy a continuous LED light for some still life videography. Uh, he's currently working with a Profoto D1 1000, which is a 300 watt. But it's not bright enough. He needs four to five more stops of light. And then he lists a few perfectly great lights. The Nanlite 4 is a 300, the Aperture 600. Um he would like to use these because they could still use pro photo soft boxes. So those lights all use sort of a, um, a still photo format for mounting their soft boxes. Whereas when you move up to bigger movie lights, they, you need a different adapter ring for the soft boxes. Um, but he really wonders if they're going to be strong enough. And so, um, he likes to work at low ISO, but also at a big F stop, like an F 11 and, um, and at like one, one hundredth of a second. So, he needs a lot of light. So I wanted to talk about this. I thought this was a good question because there's a couple things we should talk about. The first off is traditionally we think of a stop as a doubling or having of light. So 
right now you are looking at a th- you own a 300 watt light the Profoto D1 I don't know it well but I I looked it up so you want a light that's 4 to 5 stops more light traditionally we think of as a 300 watt halogen is actually being a relatively not super bright right a 300 watt halogen is pretty dim you know one stop would be a 600 watt halogen two stops would be a 1200 watt halogen three stops would be a 2k halogen roughly i'm going to round down and say a 2k halogen so if you want four stops you'd want a 4k if you want five stops you'd want a 10k now if you want to comp- if you are looking to compare to a 10k halogen light in led you are looking at something that is probably out of your price range, um, the equivalent. However, uh, you know, the Aperture 300 is comparable in some measures to something like a 2K. So I'm going to say that, you know, and that was three stops brighter. So we're looking at four stops brighter if you go for an Aperture 600, because the Aperture 600 should be twice as bright as the 300. So I think the Aperture 600, twice as bright as 300, is going to give you three to four stops more brightness than that 300 watt halogen. If you want, I, I can safely say it's probably going to be three stops. You might be able to get four stops out of it if you spot it in a little bit, depending on how you want to fill it. Um, and I think that might do the job you are looking for with the 600. If you are, if a 600 isn't quite enough, you might want to consider going for, you know, there's a few units coming out that are designed, first off, Depending upon your budget, if you really need that much light, you might want to look at an HMI. Um, you know, a 2K, I mean, a 1200 HMI, is, there are used 1200 HMIs in the world, and a 1200 HMI might be more in line with something you are looking at um, to get that level of brightness that you are looking for. Um, or maybe sticking halogen and going for something like a Barger Baglight. A Barger Baglight gives you like a 6K output, but it goes to three different power sources so you can plug it into three different power circuits i would also encourage you to start thinking in terms of foot candles foot candles uh is something that we use on film sets not as much as we used to when i was first coming in there were more older dps who worked in foot candles now a lot of dps just work in stops or they just work off the false color on the monitor but foot candles this is still a nice thing to sort of understand like oh 50 foot candles 100 foot candles to give you a sense of like you know if if that it, it helps you when comparing different sources because a 300 watt halogen will be a different brightness than a 300 watt LED will be a different brightness than a 300 watt um, HMI. But you can measure all of them for their foot candles, like what, how many foot candles they're giving out for raw punch. So as, as you start to buy more lights and expand your palette a little bit, you can start to see you know, what your options are going to be. The other thing to throw into all of this mix is depending upon what your camera is, a 300-watt halogen light is usually pretty warm, like 32, 30, uh, 3,000 degrees tungsten. And most modern video cameras are actually naturally daylight. Uh, the way they are built, their sort of natural sensitivity is daylight. So if you switch to LED or if you switch to HMI, um, which wouldn't happen with the barger backlight, but would happen with something like the Aperture 600, you're going to see uh, a little bit less noise because at the same exposure, from 3,200 to 5,000, you'll get a slightly cleaner image because it's going to be slightly less processed. So working in daylight, you might end up in a uh, healthier situation where you're getting those four stops, even though the Aperture 600 is probably more like three and a half stops fat, uh, more light. Uh, by switching over to a daylight source, you might get up to that four stops you are looking for. So the combination of all that, and then honestly, depending upon what your budget is, 
Um, looking at new camera bodies, like you don't mention what camera body you are shooting, but there are certainly camera bodies that are better in low light than others. And lighting is a great place to do it if you can afford it. But if, if you find yourself at the, at the limit of your budget for lighting, you know, uh, the aperture 600 is two grand. So if you're going more than that, if you're looking at a more powerful unit, there's some nice things. Felix has some really beautiful lights that put out a lot of output. The Felix matrix lights, beautiful. Um, and put out a lot of punch there, you know, sort of four units, uh, all together with the Fresnel, the Fresnel is, uh, or the Q8 from Felix. You should definitely look at the Q8, but they're a little more expensive than the units you're talking about. You might be better served by upgrading your camera body to a uh, camera body with better low light sensitivity. Um, although I think you should definitely consider the matrix units as well, especially that Q8. It is super punchy, but again, you'll have to buy an adapter for the softbox, although they do make one. Uh, all right, Tom, I hope that was a nice thorough answer. This has been Charles for No Film School. Uh, everybody, please vote. Um, voting is happening now, and the deadline for voting is next week. Uh, you can, as always, check out my work at charleshane.com. Follow me on the Instagram and the Twitter at charleshane, H-A-I-N-E. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find everything we spoke about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube page, like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about it, and check out all the other episodes of our interviews on this podcast. We have some really exciting ones of the past, including Bob Gale and Walter Murch. We have some really exciting podcasts coming up soon. We have an interview with Maddie Libatique who is the cinematographer that's worked with Darren Aronofsky since the very beginning. And we talked about all their features. And we also have the great cinematographer, Faden Papamichael, whose career is amazing. He's shot for Alexander Payne, George Clooney, Jim Mangold, just to name a few, uh, and recently did Trial of the Chicago 7 with Aaron Sorkin. So he gives us all kinds of insight into shooting blockbusters of every shape and size. So between him and Maddie some of the big cinematographers working out there really excited to have them on the podcast coming up plus a lot more so keep listening and thank you so much mm-hmm.